folks are giving palm branches out, as some congregations do, or uh, instead of asking people to lay down their cloaks uh, symbolically or something, we're going to lay down some shoes. This week, I wanted to do something that I think points also in the direction of getting us ready for the occasion of the resurrection. And I want to talk specifically about this passage from Luke uh, 22, because I think it does this in terms of Jesus spending time in prayer prior to his crucifixion and getting ready for that. And there's a couple of things I'm going to use this morning. One thing is a pillow. I'll make reference to this pillow in a little while. And then I've got some other things here, some oil and something that looks at least partially like blood. And uh, we're going to do something with that this morning. And I'll kind of explain those things as we go along this morning. First of all, why don't we pray? Bow with me, please. Holy Father, this morning we want to be thinking about you. I want to reflect today, God, on Jesus. And as we bow in prayer... I can't help but think about what it meant for him to bow in prayer on this particular special event in his life. What was it like for you, Jesus, to pray, knowing what it was you were about to experience? What was it like for you, Jesus, to be in that garden? To ask your Father to let the cup pass. But for you to say, not my will, but yours be done. Father, give us a glimpse this morning of what it means to think about the sacrifice of your son. Help us, Father, today to see the significance of that for us. We pray these things through Jesus. Amen. I don't know what it's like to hear uh, the words you have cancer. I don't know what it's like to hear words like, you have a terminal disease. I do know what it's like to hear someone say, a dear one that you love has a terminal disease. Three times I've heard that in my life. The first time was when I was nine years old and I learned that my mother had leukemia. Not sure I comprehended things much then. I heard it again when I was 19, and my father's business partners suddenly were there when I came home from work one day. And I went in the living room, and I knew something was up, and suddenly one of them bounded out of the chair kind of across the room in his own nervousness and said, Kelly, I have something to tell you. And I remember it very clearly when the doctor, 
who I think normally was a pretty straightforward kind of guy, but who in this case showed great compassion, told my wife and I that she had cancer. Now, as it turned out, she didn't. At least the Lord worked it out, perhaps, so she didn't. But at the time, we didn't know that, and the doctor didn't, didn't know that. Some of you have heard similar messages. You've heard those words. And it's never easy whether you hear it about your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your child. It simply isn't easy to hear. And I don't think it was much easier for the disciples of Jesus when they heard him say words that essentially amounted to, I'm terminal. I'm not going to stay alive. Things are going to get bad for me. Things are going to change very quickly. And in fact, they did. If you're in Luke chapter 22, look at verse 14 with me. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. Why? What does the text say? Before I suffer. What is he trying to say to them? I'm about to suffer. And before I suffer, I want to eat this meal with you. Now that would take you back, would it not? Look at verse 19. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, what are you talking about? What do you mean this is your body given for us? Do this in remembrance of you. I don't want to have to remember you. You're Messiah. I want you to do all the things a Messiah is supposed to do. I'm not too interested in this giving your body for me and I'm going to have to remember you. That sounds a little ominous. Look at verse 20. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this, and I can imagine they would have a lot of questions on their mind. What do you mean your blood is going to be poured out for us? What is that about? Someone is going to betray you? That would cause some concern. Look at verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon. And by the way, when it says, Simon, Simon, Satan has, has asked to sift you like wheat, the you, the you there in that sentence is plural. He's talking about all the disciples. So Simon, Simon has asked... Satan has asked to sift you, all of you, as wheat. But I have prayed for you, specifically, 
singular, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Turn back? Turn back from what? We learn very quickly, turn back from your betrayal. Now Simon says, but he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times that you know, deny three times that you know me. And so this kind of seems to be, and it's more than just seems to be, a litany of bad news. Things are not good here. Jesus is saying, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to have to give my body. I'm going to have to have my blood shed. One of my closest followers is going to deny me. And as he says all this, he's saying it right to those who are his closest followers. Look at verse 35. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you, without a pur- uh, sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he who is numbered with the transgressors, and I will tell you that, that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. And the point is, Prepare yourselves for war. And the disciples certainly get it, because in verse 38 it says, the disciples said, see here, Lord, we've got two swords. Now Jesus turns all of this around in one sense and says, well, that's enough. Because he wasn't really intending to have them go to war literally anyway, but clearly that's what he's setting them up for. Get your supplies ready. Get your bag, get your purse, get your sword bought. We have a war in which we are about to participate. And so I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer in the process. My body, my blood, it will be given up for you. My closest followers, you're going to deny me. But, and by the way, get ready for the war in which we're all about to participate. Still sounds ominous. Verse 39, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Clearly, it's coming their way. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing to take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Can you imagine? For what does the Son of God need to be strengthened? Like, what is it that is about to happen that God himself, the Father, has to send an angel to encourage his Son? Something is going on. And then look at verse 45. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The first thing I note there is that they're exhausted. They've been up all night. But it doesn't just say that they're exhausted. It says specifically they were exhausted from sorrow. Now, the disciples may not get everything. We can grant that for sure. But 
they get something. They understand that something big is about to happen. What is all this talk about death? What's all this talk about suffering? What is all this talk about betrayal? What is all this talk about people having to give themselves, perhaps, falling in temptation? Take up your sword. Collect your possessions. We're going to war. Something is going on. And they may not get it all, but the disciples, it says, were exhausted from their sorrow because they could see that something was coming. And then I think it's striking that even in the midst of their sorrow, in the midst of their exhaustion, Jesus wakes them up and says, get ready. Pray. Don't allow your fall selves to fall into temptation. You'd think that Jesus would say, my children sleep. You deserve it. Rest. But he doesn't. Because this is no time for resting. It's about to happen. And so as we head into the resurrection season, I have this pillow. And we'll leave this up here. Because the pillow for us this morning and for the next few weeks represents the notion of exhaustion because of sorrow. It represents the the desire we'd have if we could, if we were the disciples, to just sleep. Sometimes in the middle of life, don't we just say, I wish I could just get some rest I just wish I could find some peace. And what Jesus is saying to his people at this point is, this is not a time for rest. I wish I could give it to you. I wish this could be our time of rest, but this is not a time for rest. This is a time, unfortunately, for the suffering of the soul. Now, in our contemporary society, we think about Easter. It's a routine occasion. happens every year. It's associated with hard-boiled eggs that are multicolored and bunny rabbits. And we go out and we take our children and we go find those eggs hidden somewhere out there in the grass or around the bushes. It's a pretty innocuous occasion for us most of the time. I'm hoping that over the next few weeks that what you'll think about is the lack of rest. The lack of rest that is called for by God's people as they anticipate the crucifixion of Jesus. As they recognize the significance of that for our world. We live in a world that so badly needs Christ. Can we reflect on how badly the world needs Jesus? The war that is constantly going on. The spiritual battle that's there to which we're called, at least figuratively, to take up arms and not just defend Jesus, but in the power of Christ to march in his name into a world that doesn't need us to rest, but so badly needs us to mount up with the word of God and to have an impact. Well, 
On this occasion, it wasn't, of course, only the disciples that were suffering and that were exhausted. It was also Jesus. And here are some things that I'm absolutely convinced that Jesus knew. Orin, I'm going to have to, for some reason, this isn't working. So, Orin, if you would advance it, I would appreciate it. Oh, <laughs> I, th- I think he did that. <laughs> Didn't you? Really? <laughs> well, I think you did. <laughs> anyway, if you'll go on to the first one. Some things that Jesus knows. Just click. Please. There we go. He is about to be separated from those whom he loves. And this is an occasion on the part of Jesus for great angst, anxiety, pain. He suffers the potential of losing those whom he loves. He says, pray about your temptation. Pray you won't be tempted because he doesn't want to lose those whom he loves. In John 17, he prays specifically for those that God has given him, these special ones who have surrounded him, and he's concerned for them. He's about to be separated from them, and he doesn't want to be, and it hurts. You know what it feels like when you love someone and suddenly you have to be separated from them. Every time that I have to be separated from my boys, and Robin and I will leave Texas or Arkansas to drive back here, or they have been up here and they have to go back, every time breaks my heart. I hate it. It's, it's an anguish and a pain that I just can't stand. And I have to endure it all the time. Jesus knew he was going to be separated from those whom he loved. And he knew that this was a separation that was like none other. Next point, Oren, please. You want to click again for me? He will endure horrific torture and death. Don't think that Jesus doesn't know what he's going to endure when he says, I'm going to have to suffer. The Son of Man is going to be lifted up. He knows. It's clear to him. And, and it's not as though he's not going to experience all the pain of that because he's also the son of God. He's a 100% human being. He's going to experience a horrific torture and death. It's one thing to have to just experience something painful. It's another thing to have to think about it in advance. And Jesus did. Next point, please, Oren. He will endure the weight and guilt of the world's sins upon himself. Worse than the physical torture is the weight of the world's sins on your shoulders. You think, well, yeah, he felt guilty maybe? He experienced something horrific spiritually? We're talking here about God. The thing which is exactly the opposite of what he is, is sin. So he has to experience the very thing that he is not. People say, the worst thing would be if I lost my mind. Take a limb from me. Take my hands, take my feet. But don't let me lose my mind. It will make me somebody other than I am. 
take the Son of God and put on him the weight and guilt of the world's sins, and he becomes something other than what he is. He is perfection. He is sinlessness. He's the very definition of what it means to be holy, and he has to bear the world's sins upon himself. Next point, Oren, please. He will experience punishment as an innocent for the sins of the world. It's not just that he takes the sins on himself, but he has to be punished for sins that he doesn't commit. He's the absolute innocent one, and for these things, he will be punished. Warren, next point, please. He will experience separation from his father, and, and it may be that this is, in many ways, the worst of all. I've already described the kind of pain that I feel when I'm separated from my own sons, and, and it's nothing like this. The father and the son had never in eternity, ever, ever been apart. Not for a second, not for a nanosecond, had there ever been separation between father and son. Never had they been separated so that self becomes separated from self. But Jesus not only would have to endure that, but saw it coming. He can see this is what's going to happen, and he knows that the only reason that it's going to happen is because of your and my sin. And the Son of God, for that reason, has to be separated from his Father. Now, those are the things that Jesus knows in advance before they even come. Then, in the midst of this whole circumstance, there are things that he has to experience. Oren, please. Four things happening to Jesus right at this moment. Number one, first, amazingly, he does what he usually does, and he prays. Now, in one sense, that makes total sense to me. We've got total integrity and identity within this person. He is absolutely one within himself, totally together. And if there's anything that Jesus is going to do at a moment like like this, is to continue the pattern of life that he's always participated in. So he goes and does what he usually does. At the darkest hour, he just... He lives his life as Jesus and he goes out and he just usually prays and now he does it again. You would expect it. It's exactly what he does. Because this is his life. Why would he depart now from what is so typically characteristic of what it means to be Jesus? The second thing, he received a comforting visit from an angel. Now, I must admit, I don't know if you've ever seen this before. I never had. I mean, I've, I've read this many, many, many times. But it never struck me this time like it has struck me before, or uh, never struck me before like it struck me this time. That Jesus, right at this moment, praying to his Father the things that he's praying, has an angel come and visit him. Why? Why does the Son of God need an angel to come and encourage him? Wouldn't you think that the Son of God would be encouraging the angel? 
And I can only think that it's because at this dark, dark hour, the full humanity of Christ is so very real. And the full anguish of what it means for him to be a human being is so very real that his father, who loves him, sends a comforter. He sends someone to take care of his son at this dark, dark moment because he loves him so much. The next experience, Oren. He prays in such agony that blood pours from his pores. We've heard explanation by doctors that this is actually possible for a human being to become so filled with anguish that emotion can so take over their physiology that blood can actually come out of one's pores in the midst of that kind of anguish. And clearly, that's the kind of thing that Jesus experiences here. Incredible agony. Beyond what... I mean, for me to say beyond what I've ever experienced is so off the mark, it doesn't begin to compare with the experience of Jesus. The next thing, Oren, please. He experiences the weakness of human beings and a hint of the desertion and loneliness that was to be his end. Pray that you won't fall into temptation. But of course they do. And although, in some sense, their sleep is justified, at the same time, they are sleeping right at the moment where Jesus needs them most. Well, this morning, I have this container that I'm going to fill with olive oil or partially fill with olive oil. And I'm doing this because Jesus at this point is on the Mount of Olives. In fact, the word Gethsemane means oil press. And Jesus traditionally goes to this place and I can imagine that the air is filled with the smell of oil, olive oil. It wouldn't surprise me if he kneels down that there are olives that have fallen off the tree and the olive oil is even in the ground underneath his knees as he prays. And so the oil for the next couple of weeks is going to represent for us Jesus in his final moments, going before his father and praying. And then, I'll just put in a little bit of this. It represents for us this morning, I don't know if this will mix or not, I actually made sure that I got um, oil-based coloring that would mix with oil. Does it look to you like it's working? No, not me either. But we can imagine. Um, And the point with that was, in fact, this fits very well, I suppose, with the notion of droplets, that there were droplets of blood that come out of the body of Jesus in his sweat because of the anguish that he experiences. And so in that way, it's, it's very fitting to see little droplets in there. So for the next couple of weeks, we'll have that here, just thinking about the notion of Jesus in his anguish also experiencing that. And then finally, I brought out a knife. And I was trying to think of fitting symbols 
for the notion of being cut off. Because Jesus is cut off. And he's, he's cut off, certainly, from his disciples. But he also, and this is, of course, the real tragedy, finds himself cut off from his father. And so as we move into res- uh, crucifixion and then also into resurrection, we're talking also then about the notion of Jesus being cut off from his father and from those whom he loved. Well, this is, as I said, all in preparation for the event that is coming that marks the center of history. But it's not just marking an event that is the center of history. It's marking an event that is the center of your life and mine. It's true, we're going to experience another Easter Sunday next year. There'll be another one the year after that and another one the year after that and they're going to continue for a long time to come. But every time they do, and really, aren't we the people that say this? Every week, every moment, we want to be remembering what it is that Jesus has done. And so I'm hoping that these things, over the next week, two weeks, are going to help us think about what it means for us to experience resurrection also. Crucifixion followed by resurrection. And the agony and the suffering and all that Jesus experiences followed by amazing life. Now, there's an assignment too. Orrin, you want to hit it again? Thanks. Here's the assignment for the next week. Read this week each of the gospel accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus. That's what I'd like you to do. We didn't read the full account of the crucifixion this morning. Oftentimes we do that at the Lord's Supper. But over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be focusing on some special readings. And this week especially, I want you to read the records in the four Gospels of the crucifixion of Jesus. You can imagine that the next week we're going to move into the talking about the resurrection. And so we'll read those passages about the resurrection. But I want everyone this week, if you would, take some time. You've got several days to do this. Read the four gospel accounts of the crucifixion. And then over the next couple of weeks, just be thinking about what it means for us to head into this season. Thinking about Jesus, the one who's crucified and the one who has risen on our behalf. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you this morning for all that you did. I can't begin to understand your agony. I can't begin to understand what it would mean for you to be separate from your Father, separated from self like you had never, ever, ever been before. Father, help us to to grasp a picture of that, to understand at whatever level we can in our humanity what it is that you experienced through your death on the cross and what comes after. Help us to think about those things. Help us, Father, to to commit ourselves anew to the message of the gospel, what it is that your Son did on behalf of humankind and certainly for each one of us. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.